Test, test, test. The Lord be with you. Trinity Sunday. Uh, we'll, we'll, I want to jump in and talk about the Trinity and uh, the Athanasian Creed. And then hopefully we have time to get to uh, some of Luke 10 and wrap up Luke 10 with uh, Mary and Martha. We're slowly working through Luke at a snail's pace. I was thinking about this when I was watching my daughter Sadie. So now she can, she can crawl like deceivingly fast. Like she's crawling. She can't get, what? She, what? But when she was, before she could crawl, she would just kind of like lay there and slowly roll. And you're like, she can't get into trouble. So you're focusing on something else. You look back and like, how did she somehow turn and make her way like 14 feet away? And now she, how can she do? Because Slo- slowly but surely. That's the analogy I like to think of how quickly we're moving through the gospel of Luke. <laughs> so my plan is to speed up and, and kind of get more of the main, hit some of the main chunks. But it's tough because, and just maybe growing up, look, hearing it from the lectionary, obviously if you're reading, reading the Gospels at home, perhaps uh, hearing them at church, but when you actually sit down to study them is when you start to realize, man, these chapters are quite long. And then there's, there's significant, there's, there's heavy stuff, or chunks of stuff. And you'll have one chapter it just has a significant amount of material to, to cover. So coming up in, in Luke 11 is a lot of stuff about prayer, a lot of stuff about demons, and just a lot, a lot of different ways we could go there. So um, I'm trying to do service to Luke and to you and, and, have, and try to cover as much Bible as we can, but without also going so slow that we're bored to death. Yes, ma'am. What's the rush? What's the rush? Uh, I, have a, I have a short attention span. <laughs> So I, when I, well, that's why I'm like talking about other stuff instead of Luke. I mean, that's the, the kind of the joy. Before I forget, you'll notice this. Today we need volunteers to clean up coffee and food afterward. And also we need coffee fellowship volunteers. Here's the deal. This week we almost didn't have any coffee. And, and I'm incentivized for you to have coffee, both because I get to drink it and you are more likely to stay awake if you are a partaker in the coffee. Um, it's not very complicated, but the coffee machine, we have these really nice coffee machines, which I have to say, at least in my cup, I, it's not, you burn off your fingertips. This is, it makes the hottest coffee in the world, doesn't it? But you, uh, if, you have, if you don't know how to use a coffee machine, it's not that complex, but we don't want you to mess it up. And I know you don't want to mess it up. So you're like, I don't want to volunteer. I'm just going to mess everything up. No, you just need to learn how to do it. It's just like your coffee pot at home. So if you're interested and you're coming to Bible study and you just want to know so that in a pinch like we, had, we would have had today, you can just jump in and make coffee. Please uh, feel free to do that. Stick around afterward. Talk to Jacqueline. Talk to Keith, someone who knows how to make the coffee, so we can add you to the mix. But we have like a lifetime supply of frozen baked goods in the deep freezer back there. So food, getting the food isn't the issue. It's not always nice as the spread we had today necessarily, but at least it's something. Um, but it's nice to have coffee when we're studying the Bible. Um, okay, so Trinity, anything else? Nothing else there. Trinity Sunday. You'll notice if you had your bulletin, if you have your, some bulletins floating around there on the table, we've, um, we've got a bunch of pictures. And a lot of these are like ancient pictures that have been used in the church for, for uh, centuries to confess or to try to depict the Trinity. Pictures are helpful 
Because we're really, in many ways, we, we think in words, we speak in words, we think in words and ideas, but pictures can communicate a lot of words and ideas to us at once. And Jesus knew this. Really, the Old Testament, they, uh, the prophets knew this, but especially Jesus in his parables, he's painting pictures. So you think, you can, you, can, you can remember these parables, these stories that are these pictures that are easier to remember. And so pictures we try to use to, to help depict the faith. The problem is it is impossible to depict the Trinity in a way that is not heretical. If you can actually see this if you go back in, um, on, on, uh, if you remember Hans Feeney who was down in Manuka, Lutheran pastor who does Lutheran satire. If you wanna binge watch some funny stuff on YouTube, uh, you can go to Lutheran Satire. Hans was a year ahead of me at seminary and brilliant, funny guy. And uh, he does these videos that are teaching the faith. He, he says, teaching the faith by making fun of stuff. And uh, it's it, kind of short videos, easy to watch. And he has this really, he's got, he's a Lutheran pastor with multi-million views of this one video on the Trinity. That's the St. Patrick. Hey, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. So the picture, and he actually unfolds it a little bit in that video, and just to simplify it for you, a lot of times when we think about the Trinity, I would say most of us in this room, have, we're at this point where we're like, okay, I, I, don't maybe under, I don't understand the Trinity, we just confess the Trinity. And we try to wrap our head around it. We believe in one God and three persons. That doesn't really, the math doesn't add up. Just as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, one plus one plus one is one. But then you try to teach these complex ideas to six-year-olds while you're teaching them math. <laughs> it doesn't really, it's complicated. So how does it, so you're telling me, so Jesus is God. Yeah, so he was praying to God the night before he was crucified. Yes, but that, how does that, he's God though. So he's not God, he's praying to somebody else. I mean, just thinking through, it's certainly complex. And that's why, one, one main reason why we simply confess. We say we confess the faith, and we have a saving knowledge of faith, that is, we know who God is, but we don't know, well, especially, we don't know anything other than what he's revealed to us about himself. But saving faith is not the same as understanding, comprehension. So we're able to confess back to God. Confess uh, comes, from the, comes from the Greek credo, I believe. It's Latin, too. I believe, credo. Um, so those are the first two words of all the creeds. I believe, I believe. So all we're saying in a creed is what we, be what we believe. That does, that's not what we're saying, I understand. So we confess these complex things in the creed because it's how the scripture has given it to us. One, one thing about the picture, so the, the famous, some of the famous analogies for the Trinity would be what? What are some famous analogies that are depicting the Trinity? The, the, four, the three, four leaf clover. We're a wrong religion. The three leaf clover. Um, so the idea there is you've got the one, the one stalk of clover with the three leaves on it. And so you can use these images to try to teach the faith. That's just all, that was associated with St. Patrick, obviously, for teaching the Trinity to Ireland. What's the breakdown of the, of the clover? Yeah, you got like one, so you can remove the stem and you still have three little leaves floating around. It's not all one, they're distinct. And yet they're, 
it's not the same idea as being one. I mean, you also see um, like the three, the, the three enfolded tri tri uh, circles or a triangle. One triangle, that's a popular one. You'll have a triangle with every corner is associated with a member of the Trinity. And um, so the critique there would be that we have one, it's one triangle, and each corner is associated with a member of the Trinity, but they're not this, as distinct as the scriptures make clear. They're kind of merging them all together. So as, we, as Christianity moved forward, you have these false understandings or false confessions of the Trinity. And that's where Christian, that's why Christianity developed the creeds. I know we talked about this a number of weeks ago when we were talking about the Augsburg Confession, I think. But creeds are always formed in response to false teaching in the Bible. Because we would just say, we don't need creeds. We've got the Bible. Well, first of all, the problem there is, like, it's, the Bible isn't the most succinct and concise way if someone says, what, what do you believe? Um, well, uh, just read the Bible. And you hand somebody the Bible, and they're like, they're not going to read that, and it's going to take forever. You can actually tell somebody what you believe about God pretty quickly. You know the creeds, because you've been saying them every Sunday forever. So the creed is really this, this basic boiled down thing of, of the faith. But that's not why it was put together. The creeds are put together in response to false teachings of the day about the Bible within Christendom. Particularly Arianism, which, which is the, one of the main heresies for which the Athanasian Creed was written, and also the Nicene Creed, where the teaching regarding Jesus was that he was not fully God, but he was the first created being of God the Father. And that makes sense because who comes first in our families, fathers or sons? Fathers, fathers have children. And necessarily, fathers are superior because, in, that, in this analogy because they came first. They have the power. If I create something, then I'm necessarily more powerful than it because I've created it. So if Jesus is a created being of God the Father, then he's not equal to God the Father. He is a creation of and therefore not equal to God. And the reason why these, these things start to matter is salvation is at stake. If Jesus is not fully God, then he's not atoning for our sins for the world, for all time and places. If he's not fully man, he's not dying for us in the way that we die. He's, he's not able to take our place. So he has to be fully man and he has to be fully God. I mean, that's, a, that's why it's important. But then also the other piece of this, and perhaps the more important piece of it is, it's what the Bible says. The, the Bible holds these paradoxes in check. It confesses them to be in unity, and yet these distinctions. And so we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. So we just say, amen. Yes, that's what the Bible says. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. It says he's three persons, and yet um, they speak in a plurality, a creation. Let us go down and scatter the languages last week in, in the Tower of Babel. Let us go down. Let us make man in our image. There's this plurality um, amongst the Godhead, and yet oneness in God. Uh, and so you get, you get these pictures, and um, I'm never a fan of pictures of God the Father because, so whenever we are, when, at least when you read the New Testament, when we are to picture in our minds God, God wants to be pictured in, as Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So when God makes his image known in this world, when, he, when it's a way that is seen, it is Jesus. 
But prior to the incarnation of Jesus in the New Testament, we have God in the Old Testament. Now, was Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes? What was the difference between Jesus in the Old and Jesus in the New? Yeah, he wasn't, well, he wasn't, he wasn't in the flesh of Jesus yet. But this is where it gets, it gets kind of tricky. Does, Jesus, does God make himself known in the Old Testament in a way that is accessible to the eye at times? Yeah, not all the time. He walks in the garden. Um, Moses and others are kind of concerned that they are going to see the, we're going to see God. And so God like covers, is it Moses? He covers his eyes and God passes by. So there's this depiction of a, a, a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament. Some, uh, some respected, even Lutheran theologians like uh, Charles Gieschen, who's um, high up at, at um, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, he makes the case that anytime you have a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, it is, he, he would say, the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, before he's made known in the flesh of Jesus, it's still what we would say Jesus in the Old Testament, but just not, not born of Mary. But it's really hard to comprehend this. So how is he, he hasn't been born of, of man, and yet is he, a, is he a man, is he a person? Well, it seems like he is, because he's talking, he's walking. He shows up places. It's, it's just as hard to wrap our minds around as right now, Roger Holman, who died uh, last week, we had his funeral this past week, we'd say Roger is in heaven. He's, bare, he's wearing white robes. He's waving the palm branches in glory. He's singing praise to God. He's praying for us, his family, his church. Um, and yet, Roger's body is actually still in the casket, like en route to Wisconsin, where he's going to be buried this next week. So he doesn't have a, his body. He's going to, and that, and that, on the last day, that's the body that Jesus is going to raise and perfect, and the body and the soul that's in heaven is going to go back to that body. And yet right now, Roger's in some kind of physical manifestation in the spiritual realm, which doesn't make sense. So <clears throat> it's the Bible trying to put into, perhaps it's the Bible trying to put into our way of comprehending things using words that we understand, but it is certainly beyond our comprehension, so we just confess it. And whenever we see God appearing in the Old Testament, is it Jesus? Uh, perhaps we know that Jesus is present at creation. All things were made through him. Is there a hand over here? Yeah, Rich. Right, so you're certainly, that's certainly the case. Rich was saying that since God is all-powerful, we, we, we're not surprised that he's able to do all these things. And, that, and yes, we can give our amen to that. Where it starts to break down is where, when you push on some of these things, when you push a little bit further, for example, to, to say what you said, God can manifest himself however he chooses to us. Um, the, um, I forget the name of the heresy. It's like, um, fat, not donatism, it has to do with face. God makes his face, he makes himself known like there's one God and he, he puts on different masks. Modalism, that's modalism, Patrick. That's right. 
<laughs> so God the Father, or God, the God, he's like deciding to put on different masks. Especially, so in the Old Testament, he has the Father mask. And then uh, in Jesus, he's got the Jesus mask. And then Jesus ascends into heaven so that he can send the Holy Spirit. So he puts on the Holy Spirit mask. So he's, when he's the Holy Spirit, he ceases to be the Son. He ceases to be the Father. When he's the Father, he's not yet the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see? So that's where the, the heresy of modalism would say that there's one God who, who manifests himself in these, in these ways to the, de- to the detriment, I guess you could say, or the elimination of the other person of the Trinity. Or, or even to push it further, it's the, it's, the, it's the scriptures themselves. We want to be able to say, yeah, just, it's what the Bible says. The, the, biggest, the biggest breakdown is always when Jesus is praying to the Father on earth and talking about the Holy Spirit, right? We have the Trinity there. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to, to depict this, the Trinity at creation. You have the Father who speaks, um, let there be light. We know the, the Spirit is hovering over the waters, which is weird because you can't, if you're trying to envision, if you're trying to envision what it was like for the Spirit to be hovering over the water, you can't picture it because it's a spirit. If you could picture it, it's not a spirit. Spiritual is necessarily non-physical, and, and, and what to be seen is a, is a, is a physical attribute. Uh, and then God speaks. So Jesus doesn't seem to be present at creation except for he, Jesus is the, as we know from John, is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So when God speaks at creation, let there be, it's this, the word, the very word of God that brings life. It's not just God chit-chatting. God's word actually brings light into being before there's even a sun, by the way. Uh, brings, brings humans into being. He simply speaks it and it is. That word, that life-creating, life-giving word becomes flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and dwells among us. Now, that's just an impossible thing to wrap our minds around. So we don't. We just say, amen. But it also makes sense when, when Jesus speaks and his word does stuff. Lazarus, come out. That's not surprising. God's word's been bringing people to life since the beginning. Uh, and then when, when Jesus, more importantly, according to Jesus, remember the, the guy, it's a great parable. Oh, is, it in, is it in Luke? I can't remember if it's in Luke yet or not. Um, where the, you have like this one dude <laughs> who's paralyzed and his friends drag him all the way to where Jesus is. And it's too crowded. And so they crawl up on the roof and they dismantle the house and they lower him down in some kind of intricate pulley system <laughs> and uh, lower, just drop him. <clears throat> Jesus is trying to teach, like that wasn't distracting. Everybody's gathered around and Jesus says, I mean, all the, everything's leading up to this moment of everyone knows what he's about to do to this guy. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven because that's the main thing. That's all that matters. Most of, but see, when Jesus says that, this is the point of that, of that text, which I can't remember, can someone figure out where that, where that is in the Bible? 
When Jesus says that, he's, he's removing sins from this guy, both on earth and in heaven. He says, so that, you will have, so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Authority to forgive sins is to say, when I say your sins are forgiven, they are. I mean, I think about this. I, if you sin against me, I can forgive you for sinning against me. But ultimately, when you sin against me, the bigger problem is that you've sinned against God by doing that. So like when David prays, when he has his affair with Bathsheba and kills Uriah, he says in, in, in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned, as he's praying to God. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, right? But against you, you only have I sinned, is saying all of our sin against one another is ultimately sin against God. And so God forgives, when God forgives our sins, it's ultimately forgiving sins in heaven and on earth. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven because anybody can say, like, I forgive you all of your sins. I can, like, if someone pretends to be God and they say, I'm God, I forgive you all of your sins, even in heaven, you just have to kind of blindly trust me, don't you? But just so that you would know that when I say your sins are forgiven on earth, that they're forgiven in heaven, stand up and walk because only God can do that. That's why he does it. So he only cures the guy and has him walk to give further validity to the forgiveness of sins that you can't see on earth in the same way. But that's that same, the same word that created is the same word that brings life back to his legs and it's the word that forgives sins, casts out the devil. I mean, that's what Jesus uses. He just says, get out, devil, gone. So that's, that's pre-incarnate Jesus. Now that's the, the idea of the Trinity and let's, uh, there's a few things about the Athanasian Creed we want to address. And Pastor Schumacher, again, hit those in the, uh, in the sermon. I love preaching on Trinity Sunday because you don't really have to think about what you're going to say. It's like the Creed set up everybody with a bunch of uh, questions. And you have to have them answered. Is it raining? So whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith. And we know the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church that we would re recognize today is not this church, not, not the Catholic in this sense. Um, the Catholic Church, um, maybe as it evolved to what it is today, we have like the fourth Lateran Council in 1215, I think it was, is the one that said the, the primacy of the Pope. So we have an issue with the, primacy of the Pope and his, his rule of authority on earth. Um, so, but that wasn't until the 1200s. And that would be certainly an issue where we'd say, okay, I have that beef with the Catholic Church and that, I'm drawing a line, I'm not in agreement with that teaching. And uh, as you go back up in history, though, he gets more and more with a line to what we would say, yeah, that's what, that's what we believe. The Catholic Church simply means according to the whole from the Greek katahalos, so it's the whole church of all times and all places. Um, and so, we, so to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, we have to hold the Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without a doubt perish eternally. I like to avoid that. So let's unfold what that faith is. And the Catholic faith is this. They worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. So he's one God. We don't want to break it down. And yet, that's the, uh, we, do, we don't want to combine the persons like a triangle does. 
We want to keep the distinction and yet maintain the unity. Uh, how do we do that? I don't know. Let's just confess it using all these abstract terms to try to give us an idea, to try to paint a picture of what it might be like. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated. So what's the word spoken? So the Son isn't, isn't created, but he is what? Begotten. The only begotten Son of God, so John 3, 16, his only begotten Son. Well, what does begotten mean? Because we often use beget as, even the scriptures when it talks about the generations passing down to the next, and Adam beget Cain and Abel, right? Uh, so the, the, this idea, this, begot, this begottenness, and we, we see it more clearly in the Nicene Creed, is, the, is pictured as light of light, very God of very God. So the light of light would be, if I've got a candle here that's lit and a candle here that's not lit, and I put it together, pull it over here, like we do on, what, Christmas Eve, and uh, which we're supposed to, the non-lit one goes right. <laughs> and we share that, which, 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 is it a different fire or the same fire? Well, it's of the same fire, and yet it is different fire. Uh, well, maybe that's a way to talk about it. So we say, begotten, light of light. Doesn't necessarily, it does not explain away this, this confusion that we have with our, with our limited understanding because our view of father and son is based on our experience of, of what father and son are on earth. Let's see, the other big one. So the first, I'd say the Athanasian Creed, I think is about 40 theses long. We've broken it down, obviously, with that responsiveness because otherwise, I mean, it's just different ways to do it. It just tries to keep people... Um, tries to keep your attention. So we have this responsive reading back and forth. But most of us probably grew up just reading it all the way through. I went to a seminary with some guys whose confirmation class had to memorize that. And I was like, baloney. And they started ratting it off. I was like, oh. So we have, we should try that this year with our confirmands and see how it goes. Um, and so, so the first half, let's say the 20, 20 or so theses are about um, the nature of the Trinity. And then the second half of the Athanasian Creed is about Jesus, the Son of God, and how it is that he is both perfect God and perfect man at the same time, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, yet less than the Father with respect to his humanity. So we're just kind of going through these, these distinctions and yet also how they are the same, and then what he did. And the, the coolest part, in my opinion, so you're reading this creed, and you've kind of been lulled into sleep. At this, you get toward the end, and then you actually start saying things that sound familiar toward the end of the creed, that he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day, and it's like, you're starting to say, okay, that sounds familiar to me. We, we, that's, a, that's a picture that I can comprehend, because we've been saying that. At his coming... All people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. And you say, wait, wait, what? hold on, what? Amen. And then we're moving on to the hymn. <laughs> and uh, wait a second, I'm pretty sure like if we beat anything into our, our uh, Protestant, especially Lutheran understandings is that we're saved not because of anything in ourselves and only because of the grace of, grace of God. We're saved by grace alone, 
not by works. And here we go. On the last day, we'll be judged according to our own works. And if we did bad, we're going to hell. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, so what's, it's helpful here because it's true to say this. And the, the creed is mincing no words because we have to keep in mind two, two theses before we say that, it says that Jesus suffered and died on the cross. Why would Jesus suffer and die? What, is it, what put him on the cross? Our sins, which all of us have. If you don't have sins, you didn't need him to go to the cross, so you wouldn't need to be saying the creed at all. So you're saying the creed, you're giving confession to this God who has become flesh and dies for me on the cross. And then I follow that up with whoever's done bad, whoever has done good will go to eternal life and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Well, this, what's helpful about this phrase is this is why it's necessary. The, ne the next line, this is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Because, I'll come back, Rich. Because if, if we do not have faith in this Lord who has died for us, we are standing before God on the last day, which all will, whether you believe in God or not, you will be raised in your body and stand before God on the last day. You'll either be holding up your own pile of works or all of your lifetime achievements will be stripped from you and you'll be given those of Christ. And they're counted to you as your own. Just as your sins have been counted to him as his own, own. So on the cross, we'd say Jesus is a sinner, the most sin, the most, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And yet he's perfect. He's got no sin. If he's a sinner, then his death means nothing. Well, no, he is, all of his sin is, all of our sin is counted to him and it becomes his own and all of his perfection, his righteousness, his sinlessness, it is given to you as your own. And that's why we're able to say, at his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. So we're able to stand on that last day, uh, thinking back to our, our works. And certainly we don't, wanna, we don't wanna discredit the value of good works, by the way, in this life. How we are given to love and serve our neighbor and, and we, sh we sh should be striving to live in good works toward our neighbor. The problem is that under, according to the law, those, those works never satisfy the law. Those works are never ultimately good enough. We talk about this. You can love, if you somehow manage to keep the law perfectly in one instance toward one person, the law is saying, well, guess what? Here's another person. Or if you somehow, somebody was talking to me a couple weeks ago uh, when this came up, how... They, they gave a personal anecdote. They're like, I did something good for somebody. I forget what it was. Like I helped somebody at the grocery store. Maybe it's like some short lady was trying to reach the can of the top shelf and he got it down for her. So he kind of walks away and, he's, and he had this whole theological conversation with himself. It's a good job. He's like, I did something good. And he's like, but I'm, here I am rejoicing in my own goodness. It's like immediately killed it. It's like, it's like you light the candle and as soon as it... Um, or to do something good for the neighbor and then get mad that you weren't recognized for it. No one saw, did anybody see that? No one saw that? Hold on, let me do it again. Everyone look, right? 
Or to do something good and not be recognized and be totally okay with it until someone else gets recognized for doing the same thing. There's like this animosity. That's a sinful nature. This bubbles up in all of us that just kills any, any idea of good works that we might have. And, but that's the law's job. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's, we should be doing good works, and it's certainly a, a noble thing. God calls us to do it and uh, enables us to do it even sincerely. But on the last day, the comfort is this, is he, he takes our good works and purifies the good works that we have from the sinful corruption and then gives us all the more, takes away our sin so that we stand on the last day and are judged according to our works. And that's a scary thing if you don't have Jesus filling up your pockets. Unless you do, then, then you're like, okay, I'm okay with this on the last day to be judged according to my own works because my own works are Jesus' works. I'm clothed in him. Hand, Richie had a question. Yeah. Yeah, what is, in what, in what sense are, in, yeah, so maybe say, in what sense do the good enter etern, into, into eternal life and in what sense are, are you evil? So good, you're good. Those who have done good will be those who are in Christ. That's what good means. And those who have done evil will be those who are outside of Christ. And we, we want to recognize that there are plenty outside of Christ who do good. I would argue that many of them maybe even do better than the Christian. So it's not that we can make a case that like atheists can't be good people. They certainly can be good people according to the, the world's definition of, of good it, by way of philanthropy, let's say, um, and just being kind and selfless toward the neighbor. And that, we're, we see a lot of that today. I mean, we're getting an increasingly secular world and everyone will kind of, at least in America, they'll kind of maintain some, some sort of bizarre uh, objective standard of morality. It is good to be nice and it is bad to be a judgmental Christian. <laughs> but that's an objective standard of good and evil, right? So what is the, what is the goodness? Ultimately, the, the saving goodness is that which is given to us by Christ. And outside of that, you have all the goodness in the world all the goodness that the world can give, and you're left with nothing before God. And, that's, and so that's why, you, you, I mean, John, uh, Pastor Schumacher mentioned John 5, where it's really just quoting the Athen, or Athanasian Creed, quoting from John 5. Also, Matthew 25, which is depicted in the stained glass windows behind our altar, which you can only see if you're sitting directly in front of. <laughs> it's really hard to see our stained glass windows sometimes. But the, the parable of the sheep and the goats on the last day, this is a clear picture. The sheep and the goats are raised. Sheep are invited into eternal life. Uh, the goats are not. And on the last day, the sheep are saying, when did we do all these things? And Jesus says, enter into my kingdom that's been prepared for you. And so they don't even remember doing these things because it's been attributed to them. And then for those who are going to hell, the goats, they're saying, when did we not do these things? All they can think of is all the examples of goodness that they have, and yet it doesn't matter. You didn't do it. It wasn't enough. So enter into hell, which, is prepared, which has been prepared not for you. It was for the devil and his demons, but that's where you're going to go because that's where you're choosing to go.
Um, yes, sir. True death is being separated from God. Yes, there's the big death with a big D. I don't mean Dallas. Right, right. So, so like Garth Brooks, Clint Black. Have, and if they're gonna have bodies, like it's saying here, you think about you're having a body that's gonna be created for either hell or either for eternity in heaven with God. One or the other, right? Yes. So I, I guess I'm not, I'm not fully understanding. So for me, what I'm thinking about with this is, is being separated from God and being with God. Mm. So being with God would be eternal life, totally with God, and being separated from God would be eternally in hell right. forever. So he never created any of us to really die. Is that what I'm... Right. He never, he never created us to die physically or spiritually, right? He, we're, we're created to be in, in communion with him. Good. That's a good point. I, I, I'll, I'll ride that horse for a little bit. Um, so this is the problem. The problem of, of sin at, at the Garden of Eden is the separation ultimately from, from God and between God and man. So this tear, this rip um, that then is brought, restored at Christ. So that's this eternal death, the spiritual death that's brought to mankind when, G, when sin enters the world and we're separated from him. Only by the death of Christ are we reconciled. That's why the New Testament's full of that word uh, reconciliation, this ministry of reconciliation. This, and when Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, he's always saying, peace. Mm -hmm. That's the word of, of res restoration between God and man. He's bringing it back. Um, so yeah, God never... Oh, I was going to say something else about that, Kevin. Um, but yeah, there's, a, there's the, the death that we still die in our flesh. Would be, we refer to that as our, as our little D death. But yet we have been saved from the capital D, the big death, certainly, which God did not design us for, right? Um, something else I was going to say, I forgot. Apologies. Any, anything else on that? We're not going to get to Mary Martha again. That's all right. So, so Arianism, to look at your handout, like maybe first, <laughs> first number one, uh, why creeds at all? I mentioned we're, we're creeds have always been confessed in contrast to false teachings. Uh, and also because of the confession of the creed saying these things are right, those things are wrong, that's ultimately what, what started to create the the lines in the church. So Jesus is fully God and fully man and it salvation is at stake here, it matters. That's the line. So if you're gonna call yourself a Christian, this is what you believe as a Christian. They were created, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He sends the Holy Spirit, right? That's what, we're, that's what we're saying we believe as a Christian. And so that whole creed has been formulated in opposition to something else. There were others saying something else than that, specifically Arius in the 300s was saying that Jesus was the first created being. Very, very popular heresy in the, in the fourth century, third, fourth, and fifth century, I should say. So um, creeds are offensive to our world today in our age of tolerance because we're actually saying that there is a, 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 a truth 
And it's not just because we want to be persnickety and, and say that there is a truth just to make people mad. It's because ultimately eternal life is at stake here. God has revealed himself to us in this way, and it matters. False gods do not bring life. The living and true God brings life. And so we want to confess the living and true God in the way that he has revealed himself to us. Um, so here's how, here's how that God has revealed himself to us. He didn't reveal himself to us in this other way, however the world is saying it nowadays. Today's God of tolerance um, would say that you can't say anything is right or wrong. And to say that anything is right or wrong is um, forbidden, is, is actually condemn, con condemnation worthy, condemnable. So our creed is actually fashioned up in opposition to today's world's creed, because we say, I believe, that there's a right and a wrong. And outside of the true faith, there's nothing but damnation. But thanks be to God for the faith that he's given me in the Holy Spirit. Not popular to be sure to confess, to confess right and wrong, but by the way, everybody does it. Even those who would cling to the God of tolerance would say that you have to be tolerant or you're wrong. That's their creed. And they've called you wrong for being quote intolerant. So. The, the, we call it the intolerance of the tolerant. Blowing up centers to help children with babies isn't very tolerant, is it? Right. Blowing up abortion centers. Or, uh, I mean, uh, you know, a pro, uh, attacking pro-life centers. Yeah, not very tolerant. Right. Yeah. So there's a major inconsistency there that we're able to, that we're able to point out in our individual conversations. Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, that's kind of my, my shtick. It's fun, though, to walk up to somebody with a, um, whether it's the, the, the Chicago sign, street, yard signs that are like, um, hate has no home here. What do you mean by that? I don't have that sign. Does that mean I have hate in my house? What, so you're saying hate has, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, everybody's accepted, everybody. So you're saying there's no right or wrong, good or evil. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I wouldn't go there. I'm just saying that you, we shouldn't say anybody is wrong. So I think that, that there is a good and an evil. And those who, um, those who kill babies, for example, are doing an evil thing. Um, so are you tolerant of that view? No. So you do have hate then because you're not being tolerant of me. Well, what? I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> it's important to think through these things. It's easy to put a, a pious sounding fortune cookie phrase on a t-shirt or a street sign, but you got to talk through these things. Um, let's see. So the, the Athanasian Creed is attributed to Athanasius, St. Athanasius, even though it, didn't, it, was, it, it was written like centuries after his death, attributed to him. He was one of the key ones fighting Arius. You know who else is famous for fighting Arius? Santa Claus. St. Nicholas. Uh, history says that actually, of all people, Santa punched Arius in the face. You think our church councils and voters assemblies can get rough? Santa gets a little brutal. He sees you when you're sleeping. He punches you in the face. So we unfolded Catholic, the one holy Christian, and apostolic church. I mean, the, 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 the Nicene Creed could rightly be said, I believe in one holy, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And if, in fact, if you look in your bulletin in the hymnal, there's a little asterisk 
that denotes at the very bottom in the seven-point font how the original creed says Catholic, and we're okay with that. Uh, I think it's an unhelpful move. It's a classic thing of like the 60s to do. Instead of going through the hard task of saying, actually saying the, the Catholic faith and then teaching what that means, we just change the words. We just dumb everybody down instead of teaching them what words mean. So it's not bad to say that. It actually creates some problems because we, we strive for unity in the, in the Christian faith. We actually, we do confess a Catholic faith, which would mean that Catholics and Baptists and Methodists will be in heaven because of faith in Christ alone for salvation. And as I've said to countless Catholics and Baptists and so forth, I say, when we're in heaven, you'll see that you're, you're a Lutheran. And, and, and to be fair, I would say they said the same thing about me. Because if you're, if, you're if you're gonna actually worship at a place, you do it because you believe it's right. And if you believe it's right, you should be able to say with confidence that it's, it's right. It's not to say that I'm saying that the, the Methodists are going to hell. I'm just saying it seems to be inconsistent with the Bible and then unfortunately weakens the gospel and robs people of comfort. It is inferior and wrong but they have, still have faith in Christ. That kind of helps lower the, like, the tension in the conversation. I'm not saying you're going to hell. I'm just saying you're wrong. <laughs> People love to be told that. Um, any, any questions? We're at time. Any questions? Yes, Aaron. We only say it once a year because Yeah, that's a good point. So it, honestly, there, that's, the, that's the practical reason why. The content... The content is, is said more concisely. The, the, the essence of the Athanasian Creed is said more concisely in the Nicene Creed. Some of the errors that this has been written in, in opposition to aren't as, aren't as in our face today. However, we should make it clear that the Mormons and the Muslims who are growing are Arians. It is the heresy of Arianism, no different. They will give lip service to Jesus as a good guy and a great prophet, even the son of God, but not the God. Jehovah's Witnesses, same deal. So, um, so it's not that this is an ancient thing that's no longer a problem, they just changed names. The de devil is still popping up in these. And it's a sad thing because it's just enough, it's just enough gospel to be... Uh, to, sit, to sound convincing. If you ever had a conversation with a Mormon, um, especially Mormons, because they'll use a similar vocabulary as us but with different meanings of all the words. Muslims are more honest in their, uh, in their confession of things. But in any case, it's still a present, a present danger. Um, the Nicene Creed is quicker, so we say, it, we say it more often. And historically, the Apostles' Creed is associated with baptism. And so we teach the Apostles' Creed in the Catechism. We teach that to the kids. The Nicene Creed is always associated with the Lord's Supper. It doesn't really matter. It's just been church tradition. And so we might have grown up, even at Bethany, where you have like one Sunday is communion and the next Sunday not communion. And you're always flip-flopping on which creed you're saying. It makes it really hard to say the right one when you're like, yes. like whenever I'm doing the gospel procession and I'm supposed to start the creed on the return trip, I'm always like, I believe and hope someone else ju jumps in. So I'm going to say that you can, get off, you can get on the wrong track quick, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in one God. 
like one way you can go wrong and set everybody off wrong. I'm the only one wearing a mic, so it's better to just say, I believe and stop. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes? There, there's 10 billion people somewhere that God is looking at. Oh, for the judgment? Yeah. I mean, so I would say, yeah, 10 billion. I don't know if that's high enough. We don't know when he's coming back. And um, interestingly, though, he, so here's the thing. On the last day for the final judgment, God doesn't decree you're a sheep, you're a goat. It says he separates the sheep from the goats. It's already there. So God's not bringing anything that's not already, that's not already decided. And that's why Pastor Melius went through this a little bit more in depth at his conference a couple months ago. But especially for those who are in heaven and even for those in hell, there is, there's an immediate, immediate my, my soul is in heaven. So like we know how the final judgment's gonna go before the resurrection of the body. It's not like there's any doubts. And I think there's a lot of false hope on those who are in who are in hell, whatever that looks like. And, and then the final judgment comes and they're kind of hoping for a last shot. But then, yeah, somehow God's able to, to see all these things at once. It's a weird thing to picture, right? Um, Pastor Wolf Mueller, a friend of mine, I, I directed a lot of you guys to his online stuff. He gives this picture on, uh, I think is one of his Easter sermons, of this long line. It's like waiting in line for the roller coaster at Six Flags or whatever. So it's like, so the last day is you're in this really long line. And as you get closer, you're seeing like, you're seeing like this guy come out with this giant hammer and like just smack somebody in the, in the front of the line and drag their dead body off. You're like, wait a second. And in that sense, it's no different than a real roller coaster. Where everybody's on there screaming for their lives. And you're like, I'm waiting in line for this. What am I doing? But somebody, so this guy comes out from behind a curtain, kills the guy at the front of the line, drags your body off. You're getting closer and closer to this line. You're thinking, uh, I don't know if I want to be in this line anymore. And you get up to the front of the line. And right before the guy comes out to get you, Jesus steps in. And he takes the hit for you. And then he pulls you off into eternal life. So uh, I think that was a helpful image of just trying to depict. I mean, how, we, we, all we have is the image we're given to us in the scriptures. But... Um, the comfort of in the last day, even the final judgment, the hammer being dropped, not on us, but on our Lord Jesus is a tremendous comfort for us. So that's why we say uh, we're baptized into Christ. I didn't get to get there with the triune name, but the Lord has put his name upon us, which means he has promised that we belong to him. He's promised to be with us and we are clothed in him. So in holy baptism, our sin is taken from us, given to Jesus and his holiness is given to you. So on the last day, we're able to, we're able to stand before God knowing that we're going to be okay. And that's also, by the way, as we, as we go toward death. I mean, uh, the, quoting the Psalms, I am yours, save me. Uh, to be mindful that as we, if you're, there's a book, uh, Hammer of God, with this, this guy, oh, the church is going to start soon. No more anecdotes. The Lord be with you.